is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Rob Archer. And today for Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, the daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to just the plain interesting. We dig deep, ask the hard questions to bring you the facts that you need to know. On the menu for today's show, L.A.'s next possible fire chief will make history. Deputy Chief Kristen Crowley has been nominated to be the first woman to lead the department. If confirmed, she would lead a department that has been recently hit with accusations of racism, sexism, retaliation, and abuse. We're going to go in-depth into the challenges that she will be facing. The Biden administration wants to spend $50 billion to fight fires in California and the West. The goal is to thin the forests. AT&T and Verizon backing off a bid on plans to set up 5G technology near some airports. But the airline industry is still concerned the new tech could lead to thousands of flight cancellations and delays. The Senate started debates on the new voting rights legislation, but it might not get anywhere unless two Democratic senators can be persuaded to support changing the filibuster rules. Some scientists in Sweden say the Earth has passed its limits for pollution. There's too much. They say that is a major problem for all of us. And then would you quit your job if your boss paid you to go? There's one boss doing that. We will talk with him. Let's start with the selection of Chris Crowley to take over L.A. City Fire Chief. With us is Chris Larson, president of Los Angeles Women in the Fire Service, which advocates and networks to help women pursue firefighting careers. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, percentage-wise, uh, how many uh, men versus women are we talking about in the uh, L.A. Fire Department? And, and uh, what are the roadblocks that you feel you have to get over? Well, currently women make up 3.5% of the department, so we are... Uh, one of the smallest minorities within the organization. Um, I think one of the main roadblocks is that you actually have to want to do the job. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's not a traditional female role. So we have to change that perception. Um, and the only way that changes is having people that are visible um, in promoted positions, uh, as well as in the rank and file. Um, you can't really be it if you don't see it. And, and women need to know that this is a viable career option for them, whether it's in a big, large department like ours or in a wildland environment or a smaller fire department, there is a place for you within the fire service. But then again, that's what you're up against, too. We, we mentioned and we know these stories and we've seen the polling. We can name another percentage. And it's more than half of the sworn female employees have cited bullying and harassment since they've been on the job or since they've been trying to be on the job. Correct. Yeah, that that came out in our organizational assessment recently that was completed by Deloitte. Um, and, and it is cause for concern. Um, we have some changes that we need to institute so that we can overcome those issues, uh, not only for women, but for African-Americans and other minorities as well. You know, uh, so much of the country is uh, so polarized right now, and, uh, and you know, it, it filters down into everything. And I would I would guess that includes the fire department. But on the other hand, you've got this, uh, you know, let's call it old old boys club and it's that entrenched uh, uh, atmosphere that's already there that uh, women in the force are going to have to put up with. Uh, how much of this is do you feel like the, the problems are worse or are they the same? And it's just a problem that you're just going to hack away at for the next few years. Well, I mean, I've been on for 31 years, so it's it's definitely gotten better since I got on. But we still have work to do. Um, you, you can't change uh, behaviors or uh, thoughts um, on a dime. You know, it takes time. It takes effort. Um, and, you know, the more women that you get, uh, usually they say around 15 to 20 percent 
of a population that's a minority within an organization changes the, the mindset of the, the people within the organization. So clearly we have a long way to go, but it's not insurmountable. And the women that have gotten on the job have done phenomenal things. Um, and you know, since 2013, when we really started hiring again, we've had women in every single class. Now, not all of them have been successful getting through our fire academy. Um, our, our retention rate through the fire academy is about 53%. So we have work to do, but it's not insurmountable. How much more hope do you have now having, well, once she's confirmed, assuming she is, having her at the top job? Because it, it sometimes and it often is a top-down kind of thing. Sure. I mean, I think that uh, Chief Crowley has demonstrated through her actions over the course of her career that she is very inclusive of everybody within the organization, no matter what your rank, gender, or ethnicity is. And I think that she's well-liked with the rank and file members within the department. Uh, so she brings a different perspective, um, clearly, uh, as being a female within an organization. And that can bring a, about a, a lens of change for people that were maybe not seeing it before. Chris Larson, president of Los Angeles Women in the Fire Service, advocates and networks to help women pursue firefighting careers. Thanks for talking to us. The Biden administration is coming up with a $50 billion plan to fight forest fires in California and the West. And a big part of it calls for thinning forest near neighborhoods. Is this going to be enough? With us is uh, Timothy Inglesby, executive director of Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology. So this is your first question, and thank you for joining us. Uh, thinning forest near neighborhoods, is that enough to uh, cut down uh, the majority of these uh, wildfires? Well, I wouldn't say it's enough, but it's the first place to begin. And rather than, you know, taking uh, these treatments far into the hinterland, we need to really keep it close to where people live and make sure they feel safe in their own homes in the event of wildfire. So take us through some of the, the things to understand about this. We're talking about the near the neighborhood. So this is that wildland kind of urban interface, right, where we see fires break out. And depending on what direction they go, it can get really close to a lot of homes really fast because more people live in these areas. And then when we're talking federal plans, most of the forests, a high percentage, right, is federal land. It's not California. So when we talk about thinning things, it is uh, up to these guys to, to do it. Well, yeah, a majority of lands in certain Western states are federal lands, but the majority of the lands where people live border private lands or corporate lands or state-owned lands. And uh, in many areas where people live are not necessarily bordered by forests either. Witness what happened in Colorado, you know, at the end of December in a grassland, uh, devastating wildfires. So the issue of wildfires is way beyond forest fires and way beyond just federal lands. Are there maybe some uh, housing regulations that need to be uh, need to get a second look as far as a building too close to where forest fires are a danger? Absolutely. We need to start, you know, I mean, uh, fire safety begins at home. And that is, you know, making sure that you, uh, you know, got the uh, manage the, the, the fuel sources on or in or around your homes. That's where uh, where your homes are most threatened is by fires right there within what we call the home ignition zone, uh, about 30 feet around the, the structure walls. that the defensible space kind of thing? Absolutely. And it, we found at, at time and time again that homes can be more flammable than forests. Uh, it, it takes quite a lot to get a forest on fire. It just takes one tiny ember landing on a roof covered with dead needles or sucking up into its vents to, to burn a whole house down. And once once one home gets ignited, 
it can set up a chain reaction of house to house ignitions, you know, wiping out old neighborhoods. So we've got to start with homes first. And that's why I'm kind of wary of the forest service that deals with forests being the principal agent protecting homes on private lands. All right. So the Biden administration plan is uh, $50 billion. And is that enough? And what else could the money be spent on? And how much more money would it take to really um, make some headway against the problem of these forest fires? Well, one thing is we got to get real is that we're we're dealing with a a global crisis of climate change. And we will never have enough people or machines or money to just deal with that unless and until we start dealing with our our fossil fuel pollution. But uh, more than money, we need to be smart yeah, because, you know, just running faster or farther in the wrong direction will not get us to where we need to be. So it is why I'm kind of concerned that the Forest Service promising to spend a lot more money and really scale up all these fuels reduction treatments. But, you know, I, I question you know, whether they're going to be the right kind of treatments or is it going to be more of the same that they've tried over the last 30 years that are part of the problem of these increasing wildfires and increasing urban fire disasters. Okay, so if you're wary, because not all these homes are near the forests, um, tweak the plan for us. What would you like to see? Well, time and time again, how the Forest Service implements fuels reduction is more removing trees as as if that's going to prevent wildfires. Instead of removing trees, they need to reintroduce fire because there's nothing that affects wildfire like fire itself. It's the cheapest, most effective, most natural kind of fuels treatment. And uh, it, it can be, it, fire can be used at the scale needed. And especially in terrain where you can't get in there with machines, it's too rugged, it's too, too remote. Uh, so really a wildfire strategy needs to include fire before, during, and after. And, and what the Forest Service is calling a wildfire strategy to me just sounds like a fuels reduction strategy that too often gets implemented as a tree removal strategy. Timothy Inglesby, Executive Director, Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology. Coming up, a boss in Phoenix is paying new workers to quit. I know you're imagining that right now. We're going to talk to him to find out <laughs> how why, much will they give me, <laughs> why he's doing this. Also, students in Oakland are boycotting school today because they say not enough is being done to protect them from COVID. Right now, the airline industry pushing hard to stop the new 5G wireless service near the airport, saying it could lead to potential interference with important systems on the planes that help them land if it's uh, low visibility. AT&T and Verizon saying they're going to delay some of the new services near the big airports. It had been scheduled to all start tomorrow. We've covered this fight before it's been going on uh, with us is michael drycorn principal partner in the aviation security firm asd experts before that he was an assistant manager in the airworthiness division of the faa michael thanks for being back on the show so here's a question i i see people ask and we're gonna ask you um what are they doing in other countries where 5g is already a thing and they've got major airports how can they pull it off and, and we're having this this back and forth well sure sure um, good afternoon, gentlemen. Glad to be here again. Um, the The reality is, is you know, it's it's been deployed in forty other countries. Um, but you know, when we we look at those other countries, it's apples and oranges. Uh, they're using different equipment. Uh, the 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 power uh, that they're utilizing uh, is two and a half times less than what we're using in the United States. Uh, the equipment is angled in different directions. And the complexity of the air navigation systems between the United States and, and let's say, Europe 
uh, are entirely different. We have overlapping uh, communication systems uh, with air navigation uh, where that is actually a rarity over there. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've been hearing about this fight for a while, and, and we hear, oh, 5G affects airplanes. Uh, how specifically? You, you touched on this briefly, that it utilizes some of the same bandwidth there. Exactly what happens if, if, if say, a 5G signal does interfere with an airplane? What's the danger? Yeah, so, so right now it's, it's what they refer to as the C-band in the 5G, which is a narrow band um, that, that plays between the 3.7 and 3.98 gigahertz. Um, what is known to happen, uh, this is not even a, a, a question if it's going to happen, but what is known to happen is, is that the signals in, in that uh, bandwidth can and have caused damage to radar altimeters. Um, it, it doesn't happen to all altimeters in the same way, um, but the FAA knows and has issued a, an airworthiness directive to the entire industry um, that it, it, it could cause um, the, the system, the altimeter to go out, which would be probably the best scenario, or it could cause it to be um, unreliable, which is really the worst condition. Right. If you can't see and you're using the thing because it's super foggy and it's wrong, well, we have a major problem. So what yeah. are our options here? Uh, turn the things down near the airports, shield them if you can. I mean, is the issue when the airlines talk about all the cancellations that are going to happen because the FAA rules as they are written say, you know what, if 5G's on and you're going to have to rely on this thing because it's really bad weather, low visibility, don't land, you can't. So that is the ripple effects because the rule is written in such a concrete way? Well, not, not only can you not land, the airplane will not be dispatched based on the airworthiness directives. So if it's even thought that there might be inclement weather or it might be a condition which the radar altimeter is required. Uh, and, and, you know, here we are in, in, in January. That's pretty much most of the country uh, at this point <laughs> uh, relies on them when it's snowing, when it's foggy out. Um, so the, 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 the long-term solution is getting the two technologies in sync. And, and, and where, where, the, where the shortcoming was is that it got rolled out, um, when I say it, 5G got rolled out without the, um, the impacted industry, which is the aviation industry, being in sync. So we have hundreds of thousands of aircraft and hundreds of, of uh, airports out there that have technology that are going to be impacted. The, 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 long, the long solution is, is we've got to update the air navigation system because 5G is coming and uh, actually it's here and 6G has already been in development for, for four years. Michael Drycorn, principal partner, aviation security firm, ASD experts. Before that, Airworthiness Division of the FAA. Thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. With Mike Simpson, I'm Rob Archer. In for Charles Feldman. Lots of people leaving their jobs these days. The great resignation, you've heard of that. Uh, they leave one day, find a job someplace else, uh, maybe the next. With workers not afraid to quit, a CEO of a software company in the Phoenix area, he came up with this idea. He is paying new hires $5,000 to quit if they want to leave. Now, that might sound crazy, but there is a reasonable explanation for the plan. So with us to give us that reasonable explanation is Chris Renzio, the CEO of Trainual, which is paying new workers who want to leave. Thank you so much for joining us. So why are you doing this? 
Thanks guys for having me. So first of all, it's encouraging a better culture, we feel, by giving employees the opportunity to really double opt-in to working here. So they opt in the first time when they accept the job, and then after they go through two weeks of training and onboarding, meeting all the people, understanding their role, they opt in again by refusing this cash offer. All right. So if it's not for them, though, then they walk away with with the five grand, which is, I guess, good if you're a worker. And maybe this has happened to a bunch of people who were just too afraid to actually go and quit after two weeks. Um, If it's not for you and someone's going to give you five grand, even if you've got like a little bit of doubt, well, then take the money and go find another job. Yeah, it's a, it's a win-win because it's good for the person if they can get out early and not feel stuck in some place that's not a good long-term fit. And it's good for the company because at the time that we're hiring someone and training them, we probably have a pool of applicants of other people we could have offered the job to. And if one person doesn't work out, we'd rather move right on to the next than you know be stuck with someone for six months or 12 months and, and they quit when they've got a lot more responsibility. Yeah, I was going to say this is kind of uh, like a boon for you as well, because if you uh, you hire someone, you, you're impressed with them at first, and then after they go through the training, you kind of look at them and go, mm, I don't know, maybe that's not a good decision. And then you can offer them the money, and they leave. And, <laughs> the uh, resume and then, looked great. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, and then you're happy too, right? Well, you know, a company can always let someone go. And so that's the power that companies have. And I think they've gotten too comfortable with that power. But this really puts the power in the employee's hands because it's an offer for them. When we make this offer, this $5,000 offer, we don't want anyone to take it. We've already invested in that person. And if we didn't think they were the right fit five days in, we probably would have just let them go. But at the point we make this offer, we want them to stay with the company. And by them turning down this offer, it shows that they feel they're a good fit too. Has anybody taken it? Not yet. So we started this in May of 2020. And initially, it was a $2,500 offer. We doubled it once no one took it after the first 25 or so people. So we've had 39 people turn down this offer so far. So there's a psychological uh, part of this, too. Uh, The person who uh, gets hired, uh, likes the company, goes through the training, likes the the gig, is offered the $5,000 if you want to quit right now, and they say no. Mentally, that invests them to want to work harder because they felt like, they feel like, I'm invested in this job now. I like this. I really like this job, and I know I do because I turned down five grand. (laughs) Right. If all things were equal and they would just take this 5,000 and start with a new job on Monday, they would just do that. So this causes them to think a little bit and say, is the $5,000 now better? Or is the long-term payoff of me being with this company, in this culture, in this role, with this opportunity, with these people, what's, what's worth more? And so by turning down the money, they're opting in. They're saying that, yeah, this is where I want to be. Where'd the idea come from? So the initial idea I heard years and years ago that Zappos did something similar in their call center. It was, uh, you know, maybe a thousand dollar offer. And so for us as a software company, the, uh, the offer has to be more to actually uh, move the needle for someone with a higher paying salary. So, uh, I, but I, the, the original idea I think came from Zappos. Now you say nobody's taking you up on this yet. And that was going to be my question. Are you concerned that uh, there are people out there who would take advantage of it, uh, try to uh, get the job <laughs> offer? Yeah, from random yeah, and people. Just, just yeah. to get the five grand from you. But you say, if nobody's taking you up on this, I guess that's not really a concern now, is it? No, I mean, we've had thousands of applications in the last couple of days. So hopefully that doesn't change. But, you know, I've, I've had people messaging me uh, their, their direct Venmo handles and just saying, let's skip the process. <laughs> just send me the money. 
So, you know, hopefully we don't let people through the process, but we have such faith and such trust in our, our operations and our, our, our people ops department. They go through such a great process with screening and interviewing and our hiring managers are tremendous. So if, if, uh, if we, if we really believe in, in our company and our process, then we're only going to hire great people. And so hopefully by the time we make this offer, there's not too big a risk of people taking it. All right. That's uh, Chris Ronzio, CEO of Trainual, paying the new workers who want to leave if they, uh, want to leave. The Senate has started debate on voting rights legislation. It's been a priority for Democrats in Congress who are in a, a very tough position right now. They're being pressured by civil rights groups to get this passed, but to do so, they're going to need Democrats Kristen Cinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia to support changing the filibuster rule. So how are the Democrats going to navigate this? Brad Bannon, political communications experts, Democratic strategist. Brad, thanks for being here. So can they navigate this, or are we just in a place where they're going to force a showdown on the floor, even if it fails? Uh, sadly, uh, I think the uh, voting rights uh, bills in the Senate will fail. Uh, there are actually 51 senators uh, of the 100 who support voting rights. Uh, but unfortunately, in the Senate, they have a filibuster rule, which means you need 60 votes uh, to pass any significant piece of legislation in the Senate. So uh, it will be a bad day for democracy, but I'm afraid the bills will fail. So there's a lot of talk about undoing the filibuster, uh, which at this point does not look like it's going to happen either. Uh, But is there another political calculation here for Democrats to say, all right, so we're not going to be able to get this signature piece of legislation passed. We can run on this in the midterm saying, hey, Republicans, stop this. You need to you need to vote for more Democrats. Is is that a factor? And is that a good factor? Is that going to help Democrats in the midterms? Uh, Well, I think it will. It's not good for democracy, uh, because in a democratic system, uh, when you have a majority of senators and there are 51 senators who support this legislation, including one Republican, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. uh, So it's bad for democracy that those things uh, won't pass. Uh, But Democrats will use it as a tool in the midterm elections to ask why. Uh, Republicans uh, in the Senate did not want to uh, make guarantee all Americans the right to vote. And I think that's a compelling campaign issue. And some Republicans are going to regret the fact that they killed this bill. By forcing it to the floor and then it not going, they can show that, you know, they fought for voting rights. They tried to make it happen, but it didn't work. And here's your reasons. Is that enough? The the showing voters that, hey, we tried, we gave it our shot. Is that enough to, to surmount the criticism and the flack they've been getting all this time by people saying, it doesn't seem like this is a big enough issue, even though you say it is. You're not trying hard enough. Well, uh, you know, I think uh, I think Joe Biden has done everything he can. He made a major speech last week in Atlanta, the cradle of the civil rights movement, uh, advancing this bill. Uh, but the reality is uh, that, uh, you know, you're going to have um, every Republican uh, vote to continue debate on this on these bills, which will which will uh, kill them. And I think that's a potent argument for Democrats to use. Why are Republicans so afraid of democracy? Why are Republicans so afraid to make sure everybody is guaranteed the right to vote? And there's another issue here, too, as as the centers of gravity 
uh, in Congress are moving further and further apart on on the right and the left, whereas they used to be a little bit closer together, and there were still some areas you could get things done. But anymore, it just seems like that's that's kind of a pipe dream. Uh, but there's another factor here that a lot of people don't really understand, and it's it's a hard concept to get across to people. Uh, when you talk about the Senate, is split 50-50. But the Senate on the Republican side, the 50 the fifty percent of that Senate on the Republican side, represents far fewer voters than do the Democrats on the 50 percent of the other side who represent a lot more voters who want the civil rights legislation passed. And they can't understand why can't we get it through Senate when most of us, most of Americans support this. Is, is that something that Democrats are going to be able to explain to people in the midterm election season? Or are we just going to have to dumb everything down? Well, no, you, Democrats will have to make the explanation. And you're exactly right. Uh, the 50 Democrats in the Senate represent more than 60 percent of the American people. Uh, you know, I mean, California has two senators uh, and so does uh, Montana. Uh, and Montana has a tiny fraction of the population that California does. Uh, so, uh, you know, you have uh, 50 Republican senators representing about you know, 35% of the population who are able to block something that Americans are in favor of and feel very important, and that's that all Americans have the right to vote. You said Murkowski would be a yes. Did they ask any other Republicans, actually, if any of this was palatable? You know, pick your piece and we'll go from there, because Chuck Schumer's on the floor blasting everybody and saying, look at them, nobody will join us. Well, the reality is uh, they, you know, they certainly uh, went out and tried to find uh, Republican senators who were in favor of voting rights. Uh, but except for Senator Murkowski, uh, no one, no Republican offered to sponsor or even support uh, the Democratic voting rights package. Is undoing the filibuster really the only way we can break the logjam of the Senate? Is, is there nothing else that could be done? No, it's, uh, you know, the reality is uh, we have a system uh, where uh, you need all, you know, you need the uh, executive, legislative and judicial branch to work together. And that is even made more complicated by the somewhat arcane Senate rules uh, that require 60 votes to get anything done instead of 50 or 51 uh, and the reality is uh, Americans are, have always been fighting to expand democracy. And the filibuster is an obstacle to democracy uh, because it, it basically means a majority doesn't matter in the Senate. And as long as majority doesn't matter in the Senate, uh, it's hard to un- it's hard, it's very difficult uh, to get things done in this country because there's always a minority that's against something. And uh, a minority can block a, a you know, minority of Americans and senators who represent them can block legislation legislation favored by the majority of Americans and voting rights is a classic example of that. Let's look ahead for a minute here and tomorrow, the Biden one year presser. Uh, what does he hit on to try and get away from the current coverage that is basically, uh, wow, what a tough week or month or tough first year for Joe Biden? Well, I generally think it, that Joe Biden has to be more forceful. Uh, last week when he made his speech in voting rights in uh, Atlanta, he said, I'm tired of being quiet. And Joe Biden has tried to govern with uh, quiet diplomacy. Uh, 
Uh, and, you know, Ted, Teddy Roosevelt used to say, you need to speak softly and carry a big stick. And I think it's time for Joe Biden to get out his big stick and be much more forceful, calling out the enemies of democracy and people in the senators who don't want all American people to be able to vote. Brad Bannon, political communications experts, Democratic strategist. Thanks for talking to us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all our lives. With Mike Simpson, I'm Rob Archer, in today for Charles Feldman. So living here, smog is part of our lives, has been for decades. There has to be some part of the world without any signs of pollution, right? Well, think again. Chemical pollution has now been found everywhere, from the summit of Mount Everest to the depths of the ocean. And a new study reveals this contamination could threaten Earth's systems and um, stability. Miriam Diamond, professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Toronto. Miriam, thanks for being with us. So let's start there, right? Systems and stability. Is that the fundamental? This whole planet we live on is a system, and we're now to the point of throwing it out of balance. And that's really bad for us because we've got to live here. The short answer? is yes. <laughs> this is such bad news, especially coming after the uh, Omicron uh, news update. But yeah, I mean, that's the problem. And actually, you know what, there, there could be a connection uh, between um, the health that we're all experiencing right now, that is the rampages of um, the virus and so on. And some of the chemicals that all of us are carrying around in our bodies. Some of those chemicals influence our immune system. So I mean, what we found in our study is that the number of chemicals that are registered for use, their production is exceeding the rate at which we can figure out whether these are safe levels. Um, we know that there's pollution globally, everywhere especially in highly urbanized industrial locations. This is alarming. So, all right, how alarming is it? Are we at don't look up levels? Uh, is it too late for us or is there a, a way out of this? What, what do we need to do, if anything, to, uh, to uh, stem the tide? Oh, it is not too late. I'm a complete optimist because I chose to have kids. And uh, I'm just going to work really hard and um, to ensure that our children and children's children have a future. It is not too late. What we could do is start is work harder to stem the annual increase, year over year increase in chemical production, in the number of chemicals that are being introduced in how we use those chemicals and how we throw away those chemicals. And that includes plastic. Is this sort of a way of thinking that hasn't been looked at before your study when you kind of categorize it? Because it's always been, okay, it's in the water here, or there was a spill there, or we know how long plastic that makes it to the dump takes to degrade. That's kind of like in your city or in your state. But now we look at the, the global kind of level. Yes, what's new about our study is our, our study is the first uh, uh, um, consensus statement that says production levels of chemicals, pollution, and plastics is disturbing the earth system. We have to take action to reduce those levels now. 
the level of production, the level of use. And that's happening, happening globally. All right. right? So- because it can, because chemicals are, you know, chemicals are produced more now offshore. The U.S. chemical production itself has gone down. Um, but <laughs> North America imports a tremendous number of chemicals in our finished products, for example. All right. So what can uh, let's say I want to do something to help. What can I do starting today when my shift here at KNX is over and I'm going home? Let's say I'm going to go to the grocery store. What can I do there to begin to help in my own small part? Start buying less. Less stuff means less chemicals are mobilized. Uh, What you do buy, try to make it durable so that it lasts longer. So here's here's what I would not do. I would not buy fast fashion, for example. I would buy durable clothing that I know will last for a long time because I know that so much clothing is going to the dump and it has really a very large environmental footprint. So I'm going to buy durable goods that last a long time. I'm not, I'm going to keep my, my smartphone for as long as possible. I'm not going to flip it. And I'm going to express my, well, frankly, outrage at companies that are um, forcing us to buy more products more quickly because of obsolescence. I'm going to be very careful about how I manage waste that, that, um, that gets dumped. I'm going to recycle what I can. But recycling isn't the panacea. It's just using, buying less stuff. Miriam Diamond, professor in the Department of Earth Sciences, University of Toronto. Professor, thanks. Students across the country walking out to protest insufficient COVID-19 safety protocols from New York City to Denver. Kids are organizing on social media, Google Docs, and group texts. Today in Oakland, uh, unified uh, students uh, began their strike there. Sick out. OUSD has already met a couple of the demands for increased access to outdoor eating spaces and then better masks, you know, KN95 and 95 masks for every student. More frequent COVID testing is the last demand that's on the bargaining table right now. Leilani Walker is a student at Oakland High School. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Kids today a lot more aware of their surroundings and what's going on. We saw a movement of uh, school kids uh, when it came to uh, getting guns out of school and gun control issues of that nature. So obviously kids today are very aware of what's happening with with COVID and with COVID safety protocols. But what do you say? Because you know someone is going to say it, or someone's going to think it at least, that, all oh, the kids are just looking for an excuse to walk out of class and, and not be in school. What do you say to those people who might think that? Um, definitely not. Um, I have peers and counterparts who are sacrificing their well-being as far as, like, them eating lunch or time spent in class simply because they just simply don't feel comfortable or safe at school with regard to um, COVID safety and the precautions that OUSD has implemented or hasn't implemented um, throughout the school year. I imagine since you're talking to us, uh, you were part of the walkout today. How did it go? And and when did this kind of get started and, and get some movement where you heard about it and then it was like, okay, Tuesday's the day, uh, we're going to go? Well, um, I want to say everything kind of began, I want to say, last Sunday where my advanced environmental science teacher actually texted me and she was like, hey, Lonnie, there are some students from Met West High School, another Oakland Unified School, um, and they're um, 
starting this initiative to get the district's attention um, for COVID safety. She was like, would you like to be a representative, um, a student leader from Ohio? And I was just like, yeah, sure, count me in. And so um, she put me into this um, huge group chat. There's about like, I want to say like 25 of us. Um, and there's even more of us on this um, website called Group Me. And basically that Sunday, we had this um, introductory um, Zoom meeting where we kind of just um, talked about what was happening at our schools, what we see in the hallways from the student's perspective. Um, this is student-led. And so um, adults and allies are there, but they're kind of just there to just hear us and take notes um, and see how they can further support. Um, but yeah, um, since that Sunday, that or that Sunday was in preparation for last Thursday's um, stick out where we encourage students not to go to school and to um, heavily convey their um, COVID um, or COVID safety concerns. And so um, since then, two of our three demands, as you talked about, have been met. However, we're still waiting on um, our, our third and um, final demand to be met, which is the um, um, frequent testing. And so now um, I actually didn't go to school and I was heavily encouraging my peers and counterparts also to stay away from school because we do need that testing um, because simply for the simple fact that um, not everybody is vaccinated and they're rationing tests for elementary schoolers because the elementary schoolers cannot get vaccinated. So um, we're walking around and we're sharing spaces with people with people who are potentially contaminating, you know, our classrooms, our hallways, our restrooms, things like that. What kind of frequency in the testing are, are you guys looking for? Two times a week. Yeah, have you gotten a lot of pushback from uh, some adults who don't want you to do this? Because I'm thinking of there are some other school districts in some of the states where they've gone so far as to ban face masks. You are not allowed to wear face masks in school. Uh, uh, have you had any pushback from people who are of that nature? Um, definitely not. What about no. other students? Does everybody want to get tested twice a week? Maybe they think it's a drag. I haven't heard anything. I know there are students willing to sacrifice their class time, waiting hours in line for for when like testing is at school. The lines are down the halls, down the staircases, um, and these are like when these are students who are not like obligated to get tested. These are students taking their free time to during lunch, during their passing period, their free period to stand in a hour and a half line to get tested. So with with those actions from like our student the student body, I don't I can't really um, conclude any um, negative feelings with this initiation. What was it like for for you as a student to have the fact that it was a teacher who actually kind of ropes you into this, knowing that that support was there from from your teacher at the outset? I was um, I was very honored to be the one that. I was reached out to because I am a very vocal person. Someone I'm very um, I'm someone very um, involved in my school and my student and my senior student body. So I was definitely really happy that um, my teacher thought of me um, when um, they came across this initiative. And I'm someone who um, I'm actually communications chair for the senior class, so I. My job is to talk to the Oakland High senior student body, so I was also, that ties into my duty as a class officer as well.
Do you do you think this is a shift to, in a future where uh, teachers and school administrators are going to have to pay more attention to what the kids themselves really want? Definitely, definitely. Actually, we um, during our sick out last Thursday, that was something that actually came up um, a lot. Students felt as if um, adults were speaking were speaking for the students rather than speaking to us to see what, exactly what we want and how we feel. So definitely, I feel like because this initiative is student-led, I feel like this will encourage and initiate um, a lot more, um, a lot more, um, I feel like this will make, like, grab people's adults' attention just to see what we are capable of as students. And if the district says, look, we've got more outdoor areas, we're given masks, we can't, we don't have the tests. Uh, I'm sorry. We'd love to, but, but we can't. It's, it's too much uh, right now to do. What happens? Um, we would like to go back to online learning. Even if that's not as good for, for kids as being there, you're willing to make that kind of a sacrifice? I feel like there are like ways to go around. Like I feel like there for the for the students who are negatively impacted by online learning, maybe we can implement a hybrid type of system. Not really sure, but um, what we do know is that these COVID tests are really vital to everybody's health within the school because that's how we gauge who's infected, who's not infected. You know what I mean? So. Um, yes, we would like to go back to online learning, and we can, you know, make different adjustments from there. All right. Leilani Walker, student there at Oakland High School. Leilani, thanks uh, thanks for talking to us. Uh, This has been In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow.